serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. As we think about rising up and building as we finish the month of December, this month every lesson is going to come from the book of 2 Timothy. And the theme that we're going to think about is building a godly legacy. A legacy. Sometimes I think about this. When I preach, when we gather for an assembly, I don't know that it's ever been the case that we have ever had exactly the same makeup in any two assemblies. People travel, people get sick, people are, um, are, are at work, things like that. They're not able to be with us at some assemblies. We always have visitors and we're thankful when they come and maybe a different visitors, uh, a different group of visitors comes. And, and so from week to week, from day to day, from month to month, I don't know that any congregation ever has precisely the same makeup, the same group. It's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? The church in some ways is kind of like a river. You never step in the same one twice in some ways. As I think about that, my question is this. What kind of legacy are we leaving? As we consider that as God's people, we gather and we worship and we, we speak about the gospel to one another, what kind of heritage will come after us? What kind of what kind of legacy will be left behind when all of us are gone, when none of us are in an assembly like this anymore because we've left to be with the Lord? What kind of legacy will be left behind? Well, that's one of Paul's concerns when you read the book of 2 Timothy. If you haven't already opened your Bible there, please do so. Four chapters in 2 Timothy, and it is highly emotional because Paul is facing his own death. He realizes that in very short order, he's going to face Caesar, and he realizes that the outcome of that particular meeting is not going to be a positive one. He even says that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He speaks about having fought a good fight, having finished his race, having kept the faith, and believing with great confidence that there's a crown of righteousness led, left for him, laid up for him, which the Lord will give him at that day. Paul knows that his death is near. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy. He calls him my true son in the faith, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And he's reminding him about a process that needs to be taking place, not only in Timothy's life, but in every congregation of God's people. We need to think about a legacy. We need to think about the future, and we need to ask the question seriously, what am I doing what are we doing collectively in order to pass on the gospel to others? The passage Randy just read a moment ago, Paul reminds Timothy of the process that had been taking place in his life. 
Paul says, your mother and your grandmother had a great influence for good in your life, Timothy. And by the way, parents, the greatest ministry you will ever be involved in is bringing up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. That has got to be a priority for all of us, especially those of us who are parents. But notice that Paul says, you also heard the gospel from me. And so there's this process where others have been investing in you, Timothy, and now you're going to be left behind because Paul's about to depart this world. And Timothy, what's going to become of the gospel? What's going to become of the message that you've received that others have invested in you? What kind of legacy are you going to leave? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That's the focus of our study tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I don't read that that's an option that that's something that we can just take or leave. It might be a good idea. If we took that and applied it to local congregations, one of the lessons that I learned from this particular passage is that local congregations and individual Christians, we ought to be deeply invested in preparing people to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That ought to be one of the things we give great priority to because it's about a legacy. It's about a heritage. Who's going to stand for the truth? Who's going to proclaim the riches and the greatness of Jesus Christ when we're not around to proclaim it anymore? It's a leadership passage for those of you who are invested in leadership. For those of you who are interested in things like the future and what the Lord's church is going to be like. This is the kind of passage that ought to give all of us pause and every single one of us can have a part in investing in preparing people to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul tells Timothy to do and what this particular process depends on. If you're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, there are four generations that are mentioned. There is Paul, the things that you've seen and heard from me, Then there is Timothy, generation number two. Timothy received the gospel from Paul. He taught him these things. And then Timothy is to take that and give it to faithful men. That's generation number three. You see that? And then those faithful men are to do what? They are to teach others also. Four generations in one verse, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. One of the best things that any of us can invest in And one of the best things we can invest in as a congregation is encouraging people to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's involved in doing that? Here are some things that come right out of the text, right out of the passage. When you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, notice first of all, a reliance on grace. Grace just means blessing. That's all it means. The word in and of itself just means a blessing or something that is is favorable to receive. And so when we think about what Paul's saying to Timothy, he says, finally, my son, be strong in the grace which is in Jesus Christ. That's an imperative. Be strong in his grace. In other words, 
Timothy, don't get it in your head that it all depends on you and that you all by yourself without any help from God can do this. Don't have that mentality. Don't think that somehow by your own strength and your own ingenuity and your own talents and your own abilities that you're going to be able to do what I'm about to challenge you to do. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How does one go about being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? There are a number of things that could be said, but consider this. Being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus means that we are obedient to his word. He has given us his revelation. He has given us the gospel. And being strong in his grace means that I'm serious about obedience to the gospel. I'm going to do what he says. Whatever he says to you, do it. John chapter 2 verse 5. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. That's being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And for a young man like Timothy, obedience to the gospel was going to have to be a priority in his life if he was going to make a difference, an impact, and leave a legacy for good. Not only that, but perseverance in prayer. You talk about being strong in grace. Our prayer lives are a reflection of how much we really think we need God. Your prayer life is a reflection of how much you really think you need him. And one of the things that really ought to humble us and really wake us up sometimes is a lack of prayer in my life means that I'm trying to do things all by myself. I'm not seeking the grace that is to be found in Jesus Christ. I'm not going before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. What is there that God has that you are petitioning him for? Be strong in his grace. Persevere in prayer. Participate with the saints. It's an interesting when you read 1 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Paul just got done talking about a man named Onesiphorus and talking about how even though everybody else had forsaken Paul and everybody else had ignored him and left him and mistreated him, Onesiphorus did not. Here came this lone Christian man. He sought out Paul and he took care of Paul and he refreshed him and met his needs. And then in the very next breath, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. One of the lessons we ought to learn is that there is grace to be found in our community, in our relationship with one another. That's the way God designed it. That's what the church is all about. We are to be a blessing to one another because we're family and we ought to treat each other that way. That's being strong in grace. Being strong in grace means that we're confident in God's providential care. Timothy, you've got a tough road to hoe. You've got a lot that needs to be done. Be confident in the fact that God cares for you and that he will provide exactly what you need. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If we're going to invest in others so that a legacy of gospel teaching and preaching might come from this place, we're going to have to think first and foremost about being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He has saved us and he sanctifies us and he will ultimately glorify us. He will walk with us all the way.
if we'll put our trust in him. Secondly, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. What's required for the cycle that's going, that's being talked about, those, that four-generation cycle, what's, what's required for that? Secondly, it's this. We must focus on the gospel. What is Timothy to convey to others? Read 2 Timothy 2, verse 2 with me. Paul says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Well, what is that? What's Paul been saying among many witnesses? What are the things that are so important that they must be communicated to others so that they may teach others also? It's the gospel. And when you think about what the gospel entails, the gospel has content. There is a definite message that people need to hear and grasp and understand. The gospel can be summarized this way. The gospel is made up of facts to be believed. You know, some people want to stop there when they talk about the gospel. They say that it's just about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. No argument that the gospel is about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's about facts, and I need to believe those facts about who he is, about what he's done, about what he's able to do. But not only that, the gospel also has to do with commands to be obeyed. Commands to be obeyed. Those of you who were in the class about the gospel a couple of years ago in the auditorium, this ought to ring a bell, at least I hope it does. Commands to be obeyed. You know, sometimes it's scary to ask those kinds of things. Who remembers this? Commands to be obeyed. The gospel has to do with God having given us commands and saying, this is my will for you, and I expect obedience. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, the Bible prophesies that on the day when the Lord returns, he's going to take vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, brothers and sisters and friends, is not just a bunch of facts, without application. The gospel is the facts about who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what he's able to do and commands that must be obeyed as a result of that. This is what God desires of my life and of yours. The gospel also has to do thirdly with promises to be enjoyed. Promises to be enjoyed. God makes promises repeatedly in the gospel. Promises of his providential care, promises that he will answer prayer, promises that he will be with his people wherever they go, Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, promises that he will strengthen us as we need so that we can be faithful to his commandments, and promises ultimately of glory with him in eternity, promises to be enjoyed. And when we talk about the gospel, there's a content to it. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to talk to people about the facts and about the commands and about the promises so that they can very clearly grasp those and teach others also. Question, what are you doing, what are we doing as a congregation that fulfills this? Facts, commands, promises to the glory of God. Paul calls it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, a pattern of sound words. Think about that. 
a pattern of sound words. It's not just a bunch of nice ideas that people can take or leave. There is a pattern. A pattern tells you what to include and what to exclude. A pattern always reproduces the same thing. You take one pattern and you produce it over and over and over and over again, and guess what? You'll always get the same garment. When you take the gospel and you plant it in people's hearts over and over and over again. Luke chapter 8, verse 11, it is a seed, and the gospel always produces the exact same thing. Every single time, it produces a disciple of Jesus Christ. It produces a member of the Lord's church, Acts 2, verse 47, in every single case. That's why Paul says, take these things, focus on the gospel, and take what you've heard from me and communicate it to others. Next, what's required for this cycle of leaving a legacy? This leadership passage, what's required? What must we think about? We've got to think about finding faithful men. Genuine believers. Teach these things, Paul says, to faithful men. Commit them to faithful men. That's interesting that he said faithful men. Timothy, there is a responsibility that comes with teaching. There's a responsibility that comes with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to find faithful men and commit these things to them so that they can teach others also. The task of finding faithful men, don't just give this responsibility, this task to anybody. Faithful men, men who are faithful to the Lord. They love God. And that is evident by the way they live their lives. First Timothy chapter, second Timothy chapter, excuse me, first Timothy chapter one, verse 12. Paul says this in first Timothy chapter one, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul said, the Lord counted me faithful and gave me this responsibility. You look for faithful men, men who love the Lord and are faithful to him in all their ways. Not only that, look for men who are faithful to the word, who do hold fast that pattern of sound words, healthy words, 2 Timothy 1.13, who rightly divide the word of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. They're serious about the Word of God. They're not flippant with it. They are not casual with it. And they're certainly not careless with it. Find men who are faithful to the Word. Find men who are faithful to the church. I endure all these things for the sake of the elect, Paul says. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. When you're looking for somebody to give that responsibility to, Timothy, you make sure you find these kind of individuals. And it stands to reason they must have a teachable spirit. That is to say, they're going to have to be willing to listen to what Timothy is teaching them. He's going to share these facts and these commands and these promises as he's received them from Paul. And just like there's a pattern of sound words that is to be repeated over and over and over, these individuals have a teachable spirit and they are willing to accept correction. They're willing to accept new information that they didn't have previously because they love the Lord and they love the church and they love the word of God. Commit these things to faithful men. We ought to pray more fervently for faithful men. 
we ought to pray more fervently for people who will stand and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its purity, in all of its simplicity, not thinking that they have discovered new information that nobody ever saw before, but just reproducing the message that Jesus delivered. It doesn't need improvement. It has not needed improvement ever since it came to this world. We ought to pray more for faithful men like that who love the Lord, who love the Word, who love people. And we ought to pray and work towards investing in young men like that. Next, what's necessary for 2 Timothy 2 verse 2? There must be visionary teachers. Think about this. Timothy, I'm giving you a challenge. Commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That does not happen by accident. It did not happen by accident in Ephesus. It will not happen by accident in Katy. It just doesn't. Visionary teachers. A leadership passage, to be sure. What kind of vision must we have? Teachers must be intentional about this. You know, one of the things that every one of us ought to do just based on this passage by way of application, it's not really Paul's point, but it is a point. If you've got an effective ministry somewhere in your life, you ought to be given serious prayerful study, serious prayerful thought to how you can reproduce yourself and leave a legacy. Because one day, if the Lord wills and this world still stands, you won't be able to fulfill that ministry anymore whether it's teaching Bible classes, whether it's preaching the gospel, whether it's serving as an elder, whether it's serving as a deacon, whether it involves some area of helping others, whatever your ministry is, you ought to be thinking about how can I reproduce myself? How can I commit the things that I've heard from God to others who are faithful so that they can continue the process, the legacy? Teachers must be intentional. It doesn't happen by accident. Secondly, teachers must be patient. Have to be patient. Think about the Lord and what he did with the 12 apostles. For three and one half years, Jesus Christ, a visionary teacher if ever there was one, invested continually the gospel in those men's hearts and minds. How frequently did they disappoint him? Seems like almost daily sometimes, doesn't it? And yet, because Jesus invested in them and because he was patient with them, look at what they did when you turn to the pages of the book of Acts. What Jesus did with those men is what Paul is telling Timothy to do with other faithful men. And by implication, it's what the Bible is telling us that we are to do even today. Commit these things to faithful men. Be patient with them. Systematic teaching. There needs to be a rhyme to our reason. There needs to be a, a reason why we're doing what we're doing, a method to our madness, so to speak. What are the things that are lacking? What are the things that need to be bolstered and strengthened in people's hearts and people's minds concerning the gospel. Where are we shaky? Where are we struggling? Where have we forgotten some lessons that we really should have learned a long time ago? Systematic teaching, sincere teaching, not just teaching for teaching's sake, but teaching because we care about other people and because we care about the Lord and his work. 
I like what Paul said about Timothy over in the book of Philippians in chapter 2 verse 20. One of the things that gospel preachers must do, they must care about people, have to. If you don't care about people, people will be able to tell pretty quickly. Just have, it's the way it works. And what Paul says about Timothy is, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, Philippians chapter 2 verse 20. I'm going to send Timothy to you. And the reason I'm sending Timothy and not somebody else is because I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your souls. Think about that expression. I'm sending Timothy because I know Timothy cares for you and he cares sincerely for you and he wants you to go to heaven. He wants you to obey the gospel and he wants you to be right with God more than anything else in this world. He loves you. He cares for you. It's a matter of character. And as teachers, all of us who teach, no matter what the situation, the circumstance, there's got to be sincerity in what we do. Trusting. Not everyone that we invest in is going to remain faithful. It's just the way the world works. I wish that were not the case. But even in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. So you have to be not only patient and not only sincere, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable and trust somebody. I believe that this person is worth making the investment, but I still hold in my mind the reality that everybody has to make their choice whether they're going to serve the Lord or not. The process that God describes in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 is critical. It's important. We must invest in the future questions, three of them, and then the lesson is yours. Based on what we've read in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 tonight, if everyone were as interested in the gospel as me, would the church have a future? If the church were made up of clones of you, and not just clones of you physically, clones of your attitude, would the church have a future? The things that you've received from me invest entrust, communicate to others. Second question, to what degree am I investing the gospel in others' lives? I recently heard a preacher say this. Maybe I've shared this with you. He said, maybe one of the things that we ought to do for starters is we ought to share the gospel with our own families at home. Moms and dads ought to sit around the dinner table and talk to their kids and say, Jesus Christ saved me from my sins. And I want to tell you, I was lost. I was separated from God. I was without hope. I was alienated from the promises of God. And yet Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy and his great love for me, died. And I accepted the gift that he gave me. And I did that through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And I want you to know that one day, kids, one day you can make that same decision when you're ready. Maybe communicating the gospel to our own families would be a great place to start. What do you think? Have you ever talked like that to somebody that you love, that you care about? It's the gospel, the facts, the commands, the promises. Have you talked about those things, the promises God makes to us? It's the gospel. To what degree am I investing that in the lives of others? Third question. 
does my teaching lift up Christ, make the gospel clear, and edify others? Does it do those things? You know, sometimes we can be really careless in the things that we say religiously. We can say some things that might be designed as far as our intentions are concerned to make somebody feel better, to encourage somebody else, but we might not be telling the truth. We just want somebody to feel better. Does my teaching lift up Christ, make the gospel clear, and edify others as a result? Those are questions worth thinking about. When we read the New Testament, the church was involved in evangelism. They were, they were sold out to reaching the lost for Christ. But I tell you what, you cannot read the New Testament without coming to this, the, the real conclusion that the church was also invested in leaving a legacy, in entrusting the gospel to faithful men who would be able to teach other faithful men. And the process is intended by God to go on and to go on and to go on until the Lord returns. Some things for us to think about and to pray about as a congregation. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. Maybe you need to obey the gospel yourself this evening. You've never done it. Put on Christ in baptism. There's a pattern of sound words that he's given to us, facts to be believed, commands to be obeyed. And one of the clearest commands anywhere in the Bible is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. There's a promise to be enjoyed. When I obey the commands of the gospel, the promise to be enjoyed is the remission, the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. If you're ready to make that commitment this evening or if you need to respond and ask for prayers, heaven's invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing. Jesus, 
but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no to trust and obey. If you have not had the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper today, it has been left prepared this evening. As we sing the first verse of number 344, He Loves Me. As we sing the first verse of this song, please make your way forward to the first couple of pews and you will be served. Number 344. <clears throat> If you have it, let us sing. Why did the Savior heaven leave and come to earth below where men His grace would not receive because He loves me so? He loves me he loves me, he loves me, this I know. He gave himself to die for me, because he loves me so. Please be seated. with me please. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to this time of worship, we ask that uh, our hearts and minds that we uh, focus on the sacrifice that your son made on the cross, the, the pain and the suffering that he went through, just so that we sinners could, could have a chance to spend eternity with you in heaven. Dear Lord, we ask that we, we uh, focus on that and dear Lord, we thank you so much for his willingness to come here to die for us and your willingness to send your only son, your only son to die for us. And it's through his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful day we have to come and learn more about your word, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your son's sacrifice on the cross, Lord, and we just pray that these Christians that are taking the fruit of the vine, Lord, they remember the sacrifice and they just thank you for all the many wonderful blessings, and especially your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we want to thank you for this wonderful day of worship and praise. Father, now we would like to thank you for all the many, many and wonderful blessings that you've bestowed upon us. We want to thank you for everything that you've given us. Father, we know that everything that we have comes through you. And now as we, we give back a portion of what we have been so richly blessed, we ask that you help these Christians to realize the, the funds that they're giving back will be used to further your kingdom, to help the work here in Katy and abroad. We ask that you be with those who watch over these funds, uh, give them wisdom, and help them to use these funds diligently. We thank you most of all for your Son who died on the cross for our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Before led in closing prayer this evening by Brother Rocky Harold, let's stand and turn to number five, step by step. I want to thank you, John, for a very encouraging lesson this evening. If you're visiting with us, we want to extend our appreciation. Thank you for being a part of our worship this evening. Let us, let us get to know you. Stick around. Let us meet you. Let us greet you. Let us know how we may serve you. We look forward to seeing everyone again on Wednesday at 7 p.m. for midweek Bible study. Four to let our closing prayer, number five, step by step. <clears throat> if you have it, let us sing. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you step by step you lead me and I will follow you all of my days oh God you are my God and I will ever praise you 